Okay, here we are, back again. We are Man Up, the men's mental health podcast. My name is Andy Richardson, and sitting opposite me is the sensational Tommy Dankwa. Hello, hello. How are you? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? It has, but we keep saying that it's been a while. I mean, I, I suppose life get, does get in the way a bit. Um, absolutely, absolutely. We are. Ta- I don't know when you're going to be listening to this one, listeners, um, but we are in the heady throes of summer. We are right in the middle of August. The sun is actually shining. Uh, no, it's not. It's gone in. Um, Slightly overcast, but yeah. it's still warm. Yeah, so... But not for us. Not for we us. we are in a beautifully air-conditioned room. In the LCCM. The London College of Creative Media, which I forget talking about, to I've talk about. you, Andy, don't worry. You got I've me got there, you. yes. So thank you very much for, to LCCM for having us uh, back here again. Um, so how has your summer been so far? I mean, you've got the kids now, I, I take it. So, I mean, and one of them's not at school anyway. Well, no, one's in preschool. So um, obviously he's moving up to big boy school, as we say next, well, this September. Yeah. But um, yeah, half or well, some holidays are here. We've had a few days of sun. Paddling yep. pools were out. It's been yeah, it's been really nice. Um, yeah. I don't know where well where we've been. I've been had a lovely holiday. Yeah. I've returned back into the madness of everything. Yeah, it is pretty mad, isn't it? And you've been doing some stuff. Are you do you are you are you do you feel like you're able to talk about this this thing you're into? Or, well, or? absolutely. I mean, you okay. Know, true to my uh, complete uh, lifestyle change, gone to the hedonistic days of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. As we all know that I've been doing yoga and yeah. meditation. But um, yeah. I've actually been flirting a little bit with something called energy healing. Oh, tell us more. Tell right, us more. So, <clears throat> I, I've, where do I start? So for those of you that don't know or have never heard of it, um, I, think, I think the most common form would be sort of re- re- Reiki. Reiki, yeah. Reiki yeah. would be the most common form. Yeah, that's not doing your garden, is it? Reiki? Is, no, not raking. Not raking the garden, Reiki. Right, sorry, carry but on. This is, um, this is, it's really bizarre. And um, it sort of came out of desperation. I was... I knew that one of my friends had been sort of studying it, practicing it, and teaching it. And uh, she'd mentioned before we did the boxing thing for charity yeah. that she would really like to sort of work with me and help to get rid of some of my mental blocks and, you know, use energy healing to help do that. Right. And um, at the time, I didn't really think much of it. I thought, oh, you know, something to maybe look at, you know, we'll come back to it. Um, but it basically involves sitting down with, um, you know, your sort of coach or your guide, if you like. Yeah. Um, and sort of letting, sort of opening yourself up to the universe. Right. And the energy coach, she'll ask you certain questions and you'll talk about some of the blocks that you have, whether it be mentally, uh, physically, all mm. these sorts of things. And uh, using energy movement to sort of take it and send it away from you. Okay. So it was re- it's been really, really bizarre because I'm not really... Do you believe in sort of energy and that sort of thing? More and more as yeah. I'm getting older. I think I yeah. used to sort of think of it as, you know, church and God and that sort of thing. I think now I do believe more in the universe and the yeah. laws of the universe and, yeah. you know, what you put out, you get back. Mm. So, yeah, I, I was slightly more open to it. And um, I called my friend. I was actually in the middle of a panic attack. This was like a month or so ago. Well, an actual, an yeah. actual panic attack. And I was just oh, like... Yeah. It was out of desperation. I just sort of picked up the phone. I was like, look, I really want to see you and 
what, you know, what the, sort of brought, brought, brought that on? Do you think? Sorry, what brought that on? Do you think? I just it's um I think it's the same sort of things that you know I go with. I sort of I get busier and busier in work. Mm. I don't do the basics, you know, the looking after yourself and stuff like that. And I take on a lot, and then I sort of start overthinking, and I worry about the same thing, you know, not earning enough money, not doing enough for my yeah. family, not spending enough time with my children. All the things that you know. I've, it's like history repeating itself. Yeah. And for some reason, I can't, well, I wasn't able to shake them. Right. And um, so, you know, I called her and I was, just, I was desperate. And we arranged to meet up and I said, look, I've got no expectations. I just know that I need to try something because I yeah. can't carry on, you know, falling into this sort of state and feeling. Yeah. So it was bizarre. I did two sessions and um, I think the first one, we spoke about, you know, mental health, the anxiety, the depression, the feelings of worthlessness and stuff like that. And so, so we went, we just went on this. Sorry, I'm rambling a bit. I know no, that we're, we're time constrained no, and we actually do have a guest, but I do, I really want to sort of say what this is about. And um, we, she asked questions about your past and you go back and you're asked to recall certain moments and she tries to sort of figure out where these things might have come from. Yeah. And this is where it gets quite, you know, it, I, if you're not someone who would believe in this sort of thing, it gets a bit doodally. She asks you about how I felt as a kid, you know, did I feel like I was worthy? Did I have, you know, what happened? And then she does something called, um, it's called a muscle test where you make a, you, you sort of put your thumb against like your, in, uh, your middle f- finger. Mi- middle, f- middle, <laughs> your middle finger. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> your FU finger. Your FU finger. <laughs> is that is that the scientific That's name? That's the scientific is it? name yeah, for yeah. it. Your okay. FU finger. Yeah. And um, yeah, and you make a ring, and she'll ask you questions, and if your body believes it, it will stay firm. You can't break it. If you say something, she asks you a question, and you don't really believe it, your subconscious doesn't. It's weaker, and it. So right. she, she asks questions and. Um, I was sort of saying things, but it wasn't the truth, or it, but it was what I believed it to be the truth. Yeah. And this is the re- this is the mental bit. We went all the way back to, and I'm going to say I'm going to tell you some personal stuff now. We went back to when she said, "Let's go back to when you were uh, in the womb." Right. And she asked like, "What was going on there at that time?" And randomly, I sort of knew because through conversations with my parents and stuff like that, and it was. Um, my mother had met my father at the time and my sister's father, my older sister's father was not around. He was actually in, he's been locked up. He was in jail. So this is very personal stuff I'm saying right now. And um, I know for a fact that there was a lot of bad energy and there was word coming to my dad that so-and-so was out to get him. And my mum obviously was worried about that. So she had all this stuff going on. So apparently it's all the energy. Yeah. I was feeling that in the womb. I know, honestly, it does sound completely no, cuckoo. No, no, man. And that had a lot to do with a lot of my things that I've had all brought into my life, as in not feeling like I'm worthy, you know, was yeah. I a mistake? And, and we went through all of that and then had to muscle test me again. And what they do is when you get to that, she will sort of say, um, I'm telling you that I want you to go back to the baby and I want you to sort of say that, you are worthy, you are, you do deserve to be here. And um, any of those thoughts that you've had, they're not serving your purpose, we're going to send them back to, they call it the creator. And um, 
And it's, always, it's like you're in like a hypnotic state and you're releasing all of this negative energy. And yeah. But it's really good because they ask you things like, you know, what with these feelings that you've had, what purpose have they served you? And, you know, what, what blessings have they given you? Like, how do you shop now? And you sort of look at all the things that, although it's a negative situation, the yeah. good that's come out of it. So, but yeah, it's been really good. And then um, I had two Sounds sessions. Great. Sounds great. And uh, bizarrely, I went away on holiday to Estonia. And I genuinely had two weeks, although there's a lot going on in the background, I had a calm about me that was, I've, I've not, I can't remember having. Right. And it was just like, ah, oh. and a, a self-belief. Like I went out for dinner and, yeah. you know, normally I go out for dinner somewhere, and especially if I'm in Estonia, I'm the only black guy in, you know, a very white country. Yeah. And um, I feel so out of place. I try to like shrink and hide. I don't want to, anyone to see me. I don't talk. And, mm. and I sat there and I was just really, I was chatting away and having a laugh and I was laughing at breakfast and making jokes. And yeah. I sort of just realized that, hang on a minute, I actually feel really comfortable. I actually feel like I belong. And yeah. so it's, yeah, it's been absolutely, it's been a, a real eye-opening experience. Um, so, how, I mean, how many sessions do they say you need? They recommend a minimum of four, they would say. A minimum of four to try to sort of, well, you know, depending on what you want to do as well. Right. But so I've done three so far. Yeah. Obviously, I had a holiday in between. Um, I did one actually over Skype, or like because right. uh, we couldn't find the time to get together. Yeah, and it's bizarre. We sort of worked on um, again self beliefs and stuff like that. So yeah, um, so it's all small things that I'm working on, and but yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. And, really and, interesting. and I hate to ask, uh, is is it expensive? Do you know what? No, it's not. I mean, I think roughly you're looking at maybe like fifty pound a session. That's all right. So I mean for. For somebody like for me who I was desperate, I was desperate. I, yeah. I needed something, and I do. I feel like it's it's almost like therapy, yeah. but on a higher level. Yeah, you know? yeah. And what's and what's it called? What's the name of the process? I call it energy healing. Energy, energy healing. healing. Right, okay. So you know, I will definitely sort of name drop more, but it it was, yeah. You, I your name dropped. Well, who was it? Who was so, it? Okay, so uh, the healing coach. Uh, her name is Beth Carboni. She's the healing coach. Oh right, yeah. And um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's been so far. It's been fantastic. And you know, I'm I'm under no illusion. I've got a lot more work to do because I'm. Uh, I've been given some homework, which is to go back and sort of write about certain things. And while I've been writing and delving back, it's I know if there's a whole lot of more things. So yeah. Um, yeah, and there's more work to do, but it's I, I'm actually really excited about it. Really right. excited, and that's enough waffling from me. I do <laughs> apologise. No, this could be this could be a whole podcast in its own. I mean, I was to be honest, I was going to talk about a couple of things I've been doing, but I think, I just, I think I just we'll save mind. that. We'll save that till the next podcast. I apologise, listeners sitting there, and I apologise to our guest as well who's been patiently sitting. We, we do have a guest also. who's falling asleep now, and I, <laughs> <laughs> so no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was oh, brilliant. Well, I feel better. So I'm going to well, go great. now. I'm glad you feel better. That's great. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, we have spoken a lot in these podcasts about <clears throat> depression. We've spoken a lot about anxiety. Um, and we've spoken about all sorts of different subjects. But one subject that is really, uh, for, well, definitely for me on a personal level, because I've got a very, very good friend who suffers from from um, 
bipolar disorder. Uh, the, 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 the whole thing around bipolar disorder is something that really, really interests me. And, and, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a, there's quite a lot of, you know, quite, quite a lot of famous people that have sort of suffered from bipolar disorder, um, you know, Stephen Fry and um, I'm trying to think of a single one. Kanye. Ka exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, we spoke about, yeah, Kanye West. Frank Bruno. Frank Bruno's bipolar disorder, yeah. Um, Vincent van Gogh, apparently. Really? Yeah. Um, John-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. Um, Russell, Russell Brand. Yeah, Russell Brand. That. No, it's all coming to me now. Like, uh, like uh, anyway. Um, and I thought, well, it'd be really good to, to uh, explore everything around uh, what bipolar disorder is. And so... Sadly, none of them were available. Yeah, sadly, they were... <laughs> And as if out of out of nowhere, out of out of blue, this um, this lovely young gentleman uh, contacted us and um, told us about a, a book he's written on bipolar disorder, and not only that, uh, living with it and being a single dad to to twins and what it's like uh, being you know a father and having bipolar disorder. Um, he's also got a very sort of artistic background. He's um, uh, a filmmaker, which is close to my heart, um, uh, an actor uh, and a musician. Um, he's also Canadian, which I, I don't know what the hell that um, signifies. And also... You, you forget one of the most important things. On. Yep. He is also a native of the wonderful Leicestershire. Yes, he, indeed he is. So anyway, after that big introduction, um, let's uh, welcome Kenton Hall. How are you? I'm, I'm fine, thank you. I'd like to talk a little bit about energy healing before we get started. <laughs> Not really. Uh, <laughs> 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 you scared, I've you been scared. Set, <laughs> setting that joke up in my head for the last 10 minutes and dead air, dead air all around. Oh, I think we were both in shock. <laughs> you scared me then. My, my eyes went like... you fucking my, kidding me. My eyes went like... <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you for having me. It's oh, a well pleasure played. to be here. <laughs> well played. Oh. So, so, so you live in Leicester. And I you're, do, and you're Canadian. I am. So, what the heck brought you from uh, Canada to Leicester? How, describe what happened. Well, uh, I was running away. Basically, my parents are English. Right. They are also, respectively, a psychopath and a sociopath. So, I was fleeing. And I had a British passport, so oh. I flew, quite literally, to England and ended up in Leicester, largely because I used to drink. And okay. I, I fully intended to um, see my way around the country. I landed in Leicester, signed with a record label in the East Midlands, ended up staying in Leicester, and I've been there nearly 20 years now. Wow, wow. But, I mean... Not to say that sort of any Leicester isn't a a, a great place, you know. Um, it's more it's more the, the sort of transition from being in Canada to being over here that was more interesting. Yeah, in it, it's yeah. a it's a culture shock. But I grew up quite an Anglophile. Right. I think you always want to be what you're not. So when I was yes. a Canadian child, surrounded by other Canadian children, and there's a good forty or fifty people in Canada, so. Um, there was quite a bit of them. That was not unusual. That was not cool or fun. So I wanted to be a British child. And when I was six, the first time I came over here with my parents, I went back and I said tomato at everyone that I could see until they beat me up. And I stopped saying that and started <laughs> saying tomato again. Um, what do you say now? I, I say tomato because I, it, I have this weird mix now of terms. 
Like my children who are 17 now, yeah. they take they they take the mick out of my accent constantly, despite the fact that it's not anything like as strong yeah. as my accent was when it was I'm from Canada, eh? You know, I like to get the beer in the back bacon in. That's what I used to sound like. <laughs> but um it's a strange mix. It's it like is, I'm it hearing is. English and I'm hearing It's partially as well, having been an actor for this many years and having to do different accents, right. they've all kind of coalesced into this dreadful gestalt accent that I seem to have developed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I came over here because all the writers I liked were from here. Stephen Fry was the huge influence on me when I was growing up. Uh, yeah. Peter Cook, John Cleese. It was British comedy that I kind of really yeah. sort of lent towards. I didn't know when I got here that it was going to be hideous. But, <laughs> but Canada is Canada and New Zealand are the last two civilized countries on earth. That's, I think... The news bears that out. Yeah. England has much to recommend it, and Scotland, Wales, and Ireland have much more to recommend them. Yeah. But there's lots of great stuff here, but mm. ruled by lunatics. Yes. And in, a, in and not in a mental health way, just in a I've chosen to do stupid things way. In an evil evil in an evil take over the world. Orwellian V for Vendetta way. That's yes. what we're dealing with. And America's exactly. got the same thing. They've got that orange Muppet Hitler over there. And it's all yeah. gone mental. We've got yes. lovely Justin who who makes mistakes like any human being, but yeah. he's a human being. Yeah. And yeah. like in New Zealand now they've got a woman who actually looks like the politician should look and yeah, does yeah, wonderful great. things and reacts Jacinda, Jacinda, to things by going, yeah, that's a bad true. thing. Let's stop doing that. Yeah. That hasn't sunk in over here. So no. but as a comic writer, being somewhere where things are ridiculous does help a lot of the material. Mater- lot so of that's material, that's yeah. good. So so tell us about because you mentioned the, your, your um so psychopath and sociopath parents. Yes. And you said um, nothing is is off bounds here. So tell us a little bit about your childhood and 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 uh, why why you felt the need to run away. I was raised by Jehovah's Witnesses, which, if you aren't aware of it, is and no matter how nice they look in their overcoats selling their watchtowers by the side of the road as they do now, the lazy bastards. We used to have to go door to door when I was a child. They just stand there in the park now. So now now they're a cult, but they're a lazy cult, and that's that's somehow worse. <laughs> So I was brought up in this extreme Christian cult where it was us versus them. Um, the rest of the world was going to get torn apart by God in Armageddon and, and we would live in a paradise earth forever. And I started thinking around 12, I don't know if I want to live forever with these people because they, they don't like music or gay people or women really. And mostly I liked music and gay people and women. So there was a real divide in our ways of looking at the world. But you're so in, inculcated with this information that you, you believe that it's true, you just don't want it to be true. And so there's that, div- that divide. Until you can actually kind of get yourself intellectually free, you think that God must hate you because you've got some serious doubts about this whole arrangement. Then you realize it's, it's all errant nonsense, and then you run away. And so I needed to get as far away from my parents and that lifestyle. And it took years, even after I got here, to kind of completely shake it off. But also my father was undiagnosed bipolar until late in, in my teens, and he refused to take his medication because he didn't like the side effects. Um, we didn't like the side effect of him not taking his medication either. But And my mother, that's a whole other thing. God only knows. But my biggest thing now that I have children was they put the wants of their imaginary sky daddy above the needs of their children. And to me, that's forgivable, but not forgettable. 
So, so, so um, we'll, we'll dig more into your sort of background on that, but you sort of mentioned that your dad's got bipolar mm. disorder or um, thereabouts. And, and so do you think that there is a... I know there's a lot of studies on this, but do you think there is a genetic um, predisposition? I absolutely... Um, I'm working purely from anecdotal evidence in my own reading, but my father was diagnosed with bipolar. Um, his mother, by all evidence, also experienced symptoms of bipolar disorder. It does seem as though it's something that's being passed down that line. Oh, wow. um, my children seem to be fine. I mean, they're quite insane, but in a nice, healthy, normal way. Um, so I'm hoping that I've bred it out now, <laughs> at least for a generation. But it absolutely, obviously, when I talk about my childhood, it's clear that there is some trauma alongside it. Um, and so that takes some unpicking as you get older. What's chemical imbalance and what's just um, PTSD from what you experience? So there's a lot of other comorbidities with bipolar disorder because it tends to make you act in a certain way and there's trauma that comes along with that. So it starts to get messy. But in terms of the sort of mood disorder, I empathize with my father a great deal but he chose not to do anything about it. And so all I can do with that information is choose to do something about it. And I didn't for a long time. I played that usual refrain of, it shall diminish my creativity. I won't be able to write or do anything. It'll make me a zombie. It made me a danger to myself and others. I've found since I went back on medication in the last few years that well, I've written a book and a play and an album. It hasn't stopped me from creating. I'm slower, but I'm also more disciplined because I'm not jumping from idea to idea to idea and doing it at four o'clock in the morning, having not slept for three days. And also, I tend to notice what other people are doing and what they need far more than I did when, in the years where I was unmedicated. But it's strange that with my father having done what he did, that I still did the same thing for a long time. But I thought I had a different reason, and that's so very human. We justify these things to ourselves in our own yeah. special ways. Yeah, because because Kanye West, um, he spoke about that in that. Um, in, did you watch that in the end? That interview? No, no, oh, you still haven't bloody watched it. Well, he, anyway, in in that interview, he talks about um, medication, or, or as as the Americans call them, drugs. Um, <laughs> and uh, he speaks about um, how he's worried. He was worried about the creative process, and he says when he makes albums he comes off the medication for a bit but only on a sort of gradual you know like in a in a sort of controlled way goes a little bit sort of you know goes to the sort of manic stage does his stuff and then goes back on medication again um which seems a bit i don't know just seems like a weird way to work i'm wary of commenting on how anyone else manages their mental illness however i do think him talking about it that way in public is potentially very, very dangerous for people who don't have the cushion of riches and entourage to prevent them from doing any real damage. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the symptoms of bipolar disorder is spending without thinking. Now, Kanye, if he spends without thinking, he probably won't ever notice. Uh, but other people lose their houses and their cars if, they, if they're in the middle of a manic episode. Um, people ruin their relationships. I found even on the sort of low, at most, Z-list celebrity level that I ever reached as a musician, you can cloak a lot of your symptoms in just being a persona. Like, oh, well, they're a wild and crazy guy. 
musician. That's what they do. They, they swan about doing crazy things and we all laugh and applaud. And some of it becomes a pose, but some of it is just, okay, I'm getting away with it. So no one notices. They don't see the depression because they don't see you when you've hid yourself away. They don't see how much worse it gets once you leave the audience and you end up doing things that you regret or don't remember or can't track the thought process of. So I, I do think the Kanye one, it does worry me because I think that his understanding of what other people might be going through is slightly flawed in the way that he presents it. I don't think that creativity is dependent on it. Yes, when you're going into a manic phase, you make leaps of imagination that you miss when they're gone, the ability to connect things. But you can't actually do an awful lot with them. You, can't, you can only sort of harness it for small periods of time before the mania has sped up to the point where you can't think at all and your thoughts are just racing so much that it's painful. So I've found there is a difference in how my creative process works on medication to how it worked off medication. And I just do have to take my time. But my, it's still my mind, and it's still my brain. Um, the ideas that I have sometimes just need a little bit more thinking through. And I actually think, as I've gotten older as an artist, that's a good thing, that I'm not going with the first concept all the time. I'm not, I don't think that every single thing I do is going to save the world and cure leprosy and cause us all to have gold hats that we wear. You know, the kind of thing that I used to think, if I just send one more email about this album, that will solve all my problems and the world's problems. And that kind of stuff that you didn't think was even a reach. You thought that in your head as was perfect sense. This would fix everything. It actually didn't help me that I was pretty good at what I did. So we did have fans. We did have people that responded to our music. And my film did have good reviews. And so that bit wasn't a delusion. But it could run alongside a delusion that could take you off into another arena. Or the one bad review will take you crashing down into the pit. Mm. You really don't have any kind of grip on tying your emotions to any real cause. They'll go where they want to go. So you can mm. be elated on a day when everything's going to hell, or you can be depressed when the world is at your feet. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, it's trying to unpick all of that stuff, and actually you kind of almost have to make a one of those murder boards with bits of thread <laughs> and pinned, just trying to make sense of, okay, what's actually happening and what do I actually feel about it? And it's taken me years to rewrite my internal map to fit what it probably should have been all along or much closer mm -hmm. to. Um, and reckoning with all the damage I did in the interim. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, can, can we go back a little bit again? Can we go back to when you were diagnosed uh, with bipolar disorder and what that meant to you and how you got to that point, you know, where, where I mean, was were things going sort of downhill? Um, well, the obvious trigger warning in talking about um, suicide, but when I was 16, I'd kind of reached a point where I couldn't find my way out of the religion and I didn't know what to do about it. And I just, I re reached a point where I thought that I just had to exit. And... I had an unsuccessful attempt, woke up in the hospital, stomach having been pumped, boots overdose in this particular instance. And a social worker sat at the end of my bed, I was 16 at the time, saying, why do you think you did this? And I'm like, that, that 
that, that's not my job. I got enough on right now. Surely <laughs> you bring me it? some information and we'll work <laughs> it out together. And she said, I understand that you sort of been raised in this very strict religious background. Do you think that might have something to do with it? And I'm like, oh, well, she, have you thought about leaving? And it's like, have you thought about being homeless at 16 with no one to turn to because everyone you know will excommunicate you? At the minute, I still need my room. Um, so maybe we'll talk about this in a few more years when I can actually get out of the house. And it was this unrealistic expectation that I was going to be able to cut free from. And they were very wary, even though sort of the symptoms were pointing the doctors towards bipolar disorder. My GP at the time was like, well, we'll wait till you've stopped being a teenager because it could be just your normal mood swings. I'm like, if these are normal mood swings, then I am the super teenager. I should be king of all the teenagers. Because, and so it wasn't. So it kind of just got left untreated, despite the fact that I'd sort of actually been in the hospital with a suicide attempt. They treated it as a hormone-driven, potentially circumstance-driven attempt, and I went home and didn't sleep for about three months and just it just got it just got worse and worse and worse but I was kind of leaning into the mania at that point and um eventually I decided I packed the night before I moved to England and I've, and I've never been back so I I packed three suitcases and had booked a ticket and left the country at 19 so over three years I just watched my relationships with my parents break down and really kind of separated myself and needed to get away as from the religion as much as I could. And I just packed a bag. One bag was full of books, because that's a good thing to lug around with you when you're in a new country. But I don't go anywhere without my books. Another bag was full of clothes. And the third one was made up of half books again and half craft dinner, which is a macaroni and cheese product that you can't get over here because the cheese sauce that comes with it is clearly radioactive and no other food service in the world has ever allowed it to be served to human beings. And that's I, and I got on a plane and I went. And I really don't know how I survived that first um, couple of years. I was living in a bedsit in Ilkeston, Derbyshire, the racist capital of Derbyshire. Um, they're racist against even Canadians. Like they'll be racist against anybody. That's so. There's lots of lovely people living there, but they they really old school in the ex ex mining town. So it's quite a depressed area because the sort of industry has gone out of it. And I was living in a bedsit that cost fifty pound a week. I was getting thirty eight pound a week income support because I hadn't paid into the system over here. I was making up the rest by busking in town and being generally abused by the populace. And I did the th normal thing. I, I, I met a girl. We got married ridiculously young. We'd both come from very religious backgrounds. So we kind of thought, well, let's be sort of half pretend together. That, needless to say, did not work out. Um, and towards the end of that relationship, sort of now talking about my early 20s, I just had a complete psychotic breakdown um, to the point where it's even difficult to go back and imagine what it felt like. Um, I was flying back and forth between the poles, rapid cycling through mania and depression, absolutely sort of recurrent suicidal ideation. I had a couple of attempts, and it was that point where I was finally diagnosed. Um, and 
because they were kind of coming to it fresh, just because they didn't have my Canadian records, they didn't see the path that they'd taken through. Unfortunately, while the diagnosis was, I don't know, it was a relief to me that something was actually wrong. I know some people have found it as though it's some kind of sentence that's been placed on them. For me, it was actually an explanation. Unfortunately, at the time, they had a new kind of antidepressant that they were very fond of, and they were giving out like candy, which was a worst possible thing to give to someone with bipolar disorder, which they've discovered now that because it will lift your depression, but it will keep lifting and it will take you and it will actually cause you to go into a manic phase. So it basically lowered your inhibitions for someone who with suicidal thoughts and with already mania as a potential, lowering your inhibitions was not necessarily the best idea ever. So a couple more attempts, there was time I, I woke up in a house I didn't know where I was in the middle of a field in the middle of York. No idea where I was. I was naked and covered in scratches because at some point I'd fallen through a bush and it was just these pills were triggering off episodes left, right and center. So I came off of them and it was that point where I was like, right, I will develop coping strategies. I'd read that somewhere. I thought it would be good. I'm not taking these. I'm becoming psychologically dependent on them. Yes, because you have a psychological illness. That's why you're dependent on them. And then I did 10 years at least without medication, during which I convinced myself that I was well because I wasn't in that full psychotic break state. What I was was spending recklessly, uh, dealing with hypersexuality, dealing with a lot of sort of Christ complex level, I can change everything with this. And the thing is, when you're feeling it, it makes perfect sense. You've got a rational thought process. You think you can break it down into steps for people until someone points out to you that steps four through seven involve unicorns. Because, well, of course, but we'll get the unicorn, so it'll be fine. You just don't know. You don't have any way of, of actually qualifying how you're thinking, other than the fact that occasionally people around you are going, what? Sorry, say that middle bit again with the unicorns? But people don't know how to do anything about that because sometimes you can be awfully convincing as well. And when you worked in the field that I did of being in the arts, being larger than life and having grandiose ideas was not necessarily a unique quality that I had compared to the other people that were around me. It was just that I had something actually physically wrong with me and nobody really grasped it. And you made decisions that you, when you had a moment of clarity, you couldn't even understand why you'd done that. You, would, you could be cruel to people and not realize. You'd be irritable, short-tempered, um, irrational, angry, and then euphoric the next minute. It's, yeah, it, you can break it down into kind of diagnostic things, but until you've kind of been on the inside of it and seen the actual carnage that it wreaks, um, that's what makes me when Kanye goes, yes, I come off my meds and I do a bit of work and I'm like, oh, oh Kanye, why can't you just go, why can't you go back to just getting up and stealing people's awards instead of saying stupid things like this? I know you're good at what you do, but please stop it. But again, you know, he's got to manage his mental health the way he manages his mental health. So, but it does worry me. That was a long way around getting back to Kanye. See how I brought it hey, cyclically? Full circle. <laughs> Segway, seamless. Um, so you did 10 years off the meds, yeah. knowing after your diagnosis, 10 years off. What, at what point was it that you realized, right, so now maybe I need to get back to the medication? I mean, you said that you've had 
swinging between the poles. Yeah. But there must have been a point where you were like, right, okay, maybe I'm ready to do this. Or was it an episode that maybe the decision was taken out of your hands? It was. I, I, I was still having symptoms, but I'd kind of sort of convinced myself that I knew what to do. I knew how to prepare for a manic episode and I knew how to prepare for a depressive episode. And I had people around me that also knew me and could see things coming and would help me get through them. And in reality, following uh, a breakup, following making uh, the film that I made, which was two years of not sleeping for 16 hour days, seven days a week, I had forgotten all of my limitations and I'd pushed myself through. And so a lot of personal stuff happened, a relationship ended, um, and the film, which I'm very, very proud of, you know, it didn't take over the world like I somehow thought it would. And I started to, I was in a real period where I really, it should have been sad. I was sad things were happening. I was naturally sad, so I didn't see it coming because I was distraught for real. And I could see that there was something in my life about which I could be distraught. And then I just started acting out of character. And it just took someone saying, what are you doing? Someone that really mattered actually being slightly startled by my behavior, which, had, which I thought hadn't happened for a long time. And that was the sort of spur I needed. And shortly after that, I just, I kind of just fell apart. Like I just, you know, just a mess of tears. And, and, I, and I decided in that moment that I had to get help because I just didn't know what else to do. It hadn't been this bad in, in a decade, not for as consistently. So it was a cumulative thing. Sort of a whole bunch of things that I wish hadn't happened led to the best decision that I'd made in 15 years at least, which was to actually go and get some help. And even then, one of the problems I've found when I'm talking to doctors, and I don't know why this is, but because my, as you might have noticed, I'm quite verbal. <laughs> but that's, and that's the last thing that goes with me. Like everything else can go, including higher brain, fun brain function. And I'm still talking in big words. And a lot of times, doctors have just assumed that I was making it up, that I was fine, despite the fact that I have a diagnosis of bipolar 1, which is you know, severe manic episodes, severe depressive episodes. If I could articulate it, they were like, you're all right. When I first went in a complete mess, two days off a psychotic break, they gave me beta blockers the first time. Well, you need to chill out a bit. Really? <laughs> Yeah, okay, the, the, let's see how that works out. And I had to fight. I had to fight for the medication. In some ways, I mean, it's good that they're not handing it out like candy again, but I felt like I had a real pressing need. And so eventually I just had to keep going back and going back and saying, look, I really want to handle this with medication this time. I've tried everything else. So let's, let's deal with that. And so eventually, I mean, it's hard as well. I know the NHS is underfunded under-resourced, and I do have all the empathy in the world, particularly in mental health fields, but it's indicative that we should do something about that. So, yeah, I fought, and I sort of, was, sort of was referred to the mental health services, whom, through no fault of their own, I guess, I've only maybe seen twice in the last four years because appointments are so hard to come by, but they put me on this medication and said, basically, you're on that for the rest of your life. And I was like, okay. And for the first time in my life, I was, that's fine. But it, 
the first three months was horrible. I don't know how I got through that. It felt like I was being rewritten from the inside out. Suddenly, every every piece of information I'd ever had, every memory I'd ever had, every track of decision-making I'd ever had was being dismantled and put back together. It was like having your making you look through your whole life through a funhouse mirror and then realizing that it had been the funhouse mirror the first time around. Now you were looking in the real mirror. And it, I, that's the only way I can explain it. It felt like being dismantled and rebuilt in another image. And I know why, I can understand why some people go, nope, not doing that, because they're used to themselves. I think my sense of self had fractured to the point of view that I was like, well, I wasn't doing much with that sense of self. Let's see what this one looks like. So I rode it out, which is the thing that my father hadn't done. I rode through all the side effects. And I feel more clear-headed. I still, it's never going away. It's, I'm always going to be prone. I've always got to watch my limitations, have to watch my stress. I have to audit my thoughts from time to time that if I start to get too enthusiastic about something without any basis for it, I need to pull back. But about six months into being on medication, I had the first day in my entire life where I was not in pain of some kind. And it was like, oh, is this what the rest of you feel like all the time, you bastards? What are you whinging about? Because I had been in physical or emotional pain with it throughout my entire childhood, throughout my entire adulthood. There was always some measure of pain there. And my life is not how I would have it. I don't want to be single. I don't want my children to be 17, which is ridiculous because I'm only 23. I don't know how they've managed that. <laughs> my life isn't how I would have it. I would prefer my life to be almost completely different to what it was, but I wasn't in pain. And I could think clearly, and I could make plans, and I could make plans for the future. I could go, right, I'm going to start here, and I'm going to get to that point in a year's time. I never made plans more than 20 minutes ahead for 40 years. <laughs> and so I completely understand why some people don't like me. I've put on two stone, put on two stone within three months of the medication. Apparently it's either sane or pretty. So I had to choose one. And it's things like that where it's like, do you know what? Okay. I wish I hadn't put on this weight. I wish I could lose it without actually sort of amputating something. But I've had a day where I wasn't in pain. And it is those deals that you make with yourself about everything. Does it matter? Would you rather be in pain all the time or would you rather lose a stone? Uh, and some days you're like, hold on, let me think. <laughs> but you just come back uh, over and over again. And I think it's like having children doesn't take mental health issues away, as we know. No matter how much you love your children, that isn't enough to go through a serious mental health issue. But once you've got the clarity then you can latch on to things like your children and your responsibility for them when you have a clear head. I think people beat themselves up because sometimes they do terrible things when they're in the midst of their mental illness and wonder why their love for their family or their children or their partner wasn't enough to stop them because it's a chemical imbalance. It's something wrong. You, you are not in control. And I think, but when you have a moment of clarity, that's your point where you have to take responsibility 
when you are sort of free of the storm for a minute, that's when you have to go, I'm going to make good decisions while I can and hope that those carry on. I, th I think everything you've just said is really, really, really important. Really important for the um, listeners to grasp hold of because we speak a lot about medication, the benefits, the drawbacks of it and that sort of thing. And you've put it in words crystal clear why certain people should take medication and it is something that shouldn't be um you know put aside or or, or, or scared of because it works for you it's given you given you your life back and that's that's really important it's actually really nice to hear as well because you know you're doing a bit of research before and reading a few people's stories with bipolar it was the medication that like you said they really struggled with um you know, I think because often when some people are taken away against their will, when they're in the, you know, they're pumped full of drugs and it's like, you know, why are you doing this? Because they haven't, it's almost like you, you it sounds like you accepted that you needed the help. And I think, you know, with many people, it's like, they get to that point where it's like, I, like, I need it. And mm. I think, I guess it's your mindset, you're more willing to go with it. And well, I think anything, it has to be your choice. Yeah. Even if the medication is sort of given to you in crisis in a hospital, you still have to choose to continue taking it. And, you know, medication is not for everybody. Not all mental illnesses are created equal. Some people need therapy. Some people need meditation. Some people need any number of combination of therapies to help them go where they're going. With bipolar disorder, I have tried everything else, and I have found that medication has given me the clarity I need to make the other changes and to deal with the other trauma. I think it's dangerous that we kind of split into groups on this. You have the yeah. people who are like, big pharma. Like, do you know what? I don't find it super shocking that someone that can make money through drugs is, because that's kind of the human race. It doesn't necessarily, if someone was making a huge, millions and millions on selling beetroot to everyone, it wouldn't mean that beetroot was bad. It would, it would still just mean there's an asshole in charge of it. And that's all big pharma is. The drugs are still important, but there's an asshole in charge of it. That's where it comes down. That's the balance that you have to strike is yes, sometimes, particularly in America, we're getting screwed over, over drugs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the drugs themselves have no purpose. Yes, if they're being handed out like candy, with nothing to say that they might be useful for everyone. Obviously, you've got to do your reading, your research. You've got to ask around. You've got to talk to lots of different people. But this whole idea that, I mean, I had someone once tell me that if I just ate more almonds, I wouldn't have bipolar disorder anymore. And then, he, and then the same person told me that I should, if I stopped having fluoride in my toothpaste, then I wouldn't have bipolar anymore. And it's just like, do you know what? I'm going to get some almonds, I'm going to throw them at you, and then I'm going to cover you in fluoride. <laughs> I'm going to brush you until you're less stupid. <laughs> and I try to be quite zen about people now, but every so often, because that's the other <laughs> thing, I spend my whole life angry, angry at everything, and frustrated and furious. And sort of since I had some clarity with medication, I've worked really hard to become a, a calmer, more zen person. But unfortunately, I still keep getting beset upon by morons. And I want to love them and help them and show them and guide them. But then they just keep saying things like I should eat more almonds and I wouldn't have the severe mental illness that's been troubling me. My almonds are life. good, you know, they are I good. Know. They're bloody good shit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You can cure any. I mean, to be fair, I started eating the almonds and I only had one leg when I started. So, and that grew back. So, but the bipolar was still there. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I think he's on the right track, but he's not quite there yet. But um, yeah, no, it's. 
and there is an industry that's sprung up around mental illness because it is so prevalent and we're yeah. having more of a conversation. Yeah. Um so I'm just I'm always wary of everything, but also open minded about everything. Yeah. So I I think you can go into something going, okay, prove it to me, show me it's effective, but at the same time still not be kind of naive about it. Like you can strike that balance, and that's where I try to be at. I'm but I can only and I can only ever talk about my own experience. Mm. I would never insist on someone else following my path. Certainly not before the meds. Uh, my path before that. Please don't do any of that. <laughs> I, I am a cautionary tale, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but some good things came out of it. I mean, yes, you said a film. Yeah, an album. Yeah, and I'm I'm proud of all the work I did while I was off my head on my own chemistry. Um, but I like to think I would have done it anyway. Yes, and that might I might have done more with it. Um, go on. Oh, look, yeah, there's, well, yeah, there's quite this. I mean, we're 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 50 minutes in. There's still so many questions I've got I to think ask. We have and that's in two parts. You're <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Talking about proud, yeah. uh, proud things. Um, you've got a book. That was a great segue into why I came, you, wasn't you've it? You've got a book, <laughs> and I feel that we need to give this some airtime. Yes. I yeah I, I've always written. It's I mean I I consider myself a writer. I used to write songs. I used to write scripts, written stories. And I started writing about my illness as kind of a way of recovering and tracking it while I was going through that period with the medication where I was all at sea. I took this one skill I knew I still had and I wrote every day because my doctor had said, why don't you keep a mood diary? And I was like, that sounds horrible. I don't want to keep a mood diary. That might make me vomit, but I will write every day. And so I wrote about what I was feeling, what effect the medication was having. And it just so happened that a publisher um, that I knew obliquely through other people had read a lot of this. And he was like, do you want to collect these into a volume? I was like, no, if I'm going to write a book, I want to write something from scratch because I've always wanted a full-length prose work. It's what I dreamt of when I was five, other than being on The Muppet Show and, and the unicorns. And so I said, well, let me talk about the subject. Let me talk about what it's been like living and parenting with bipolar disorder because those are the two subjects I know best. And so I used it as a framework. This, at that point, 16 years that my children and I and bipolar disorder had been together as an uneasy foursome. And I wrote that story. And it kind of ended up being what I thought it might be, but it went a lot of places as you might when I started digging it. It's based around those 16 years, but it goes back and forth in time. It really explores my relationship with this kind of shadow self that I've always felt was there, my relationship with my children, their relationship with that other father that they've had along for the journey, and hopefully funny. That's what I, I write yeah. comedy. That's my what I always want to do. I tried to treat it as if Douglas Adams had written a book about mental health. That was what I was going for in terms well, the, of a tone. Well, the book's quite bipolar in itself, isn't it? Because it it because it goes it, it's sort of like a sort of a personal narrative, but then it has intervals after every chapter which talk about more about the issues around bipolar disorder. Yeah, yeah. so it's like two books in one, isn't That's it? That's yeah. I <laughs> I'm, I'm wary of saying the book is bipolar because everyone online is always going, "Oh, the weather is so bipolar today." It's like, no, it isn't. It's raining. That's all. <laughs> But yeah, it, I did kind of try to construct something that did mirror some of the things that I was talking about. So it was quite deliberate, that. But I also wanted to make sure that I 
talked through some of the issues in, in more detail, but at the same time trying to make them accessible, make find some light in the darkness and some darkness in the light, depending on where I was in the story. I wanted it to be a hopeful story um, for myself as much as the audience, but you can't really have hope if you don't explore how far you've fallen before you started crawling back up. So I really do hope it's the kind of book that makes you laugh, makes you cry. There's, there's an intermission and everything. It's, it's a whole... I hope there isn't anything else like it, and I worry that there isn't anything else like it. <laughs> so there's the two combinations. And so, and so it's coming out, um, is, is it, when's it coming uh, out? It's or end of it? August, it'll be released wide. Um, they'll be, they'll be on Amazon with an ebook and an audio book and a paperback. Um, you can pre-order it through Chinbeard Books now, um, and those will start going out direct from the publisher at the end of the month. Right now, I'm just in the thick of recording the audio book, which means I'm having to listen to myself for like 10 hours <laughs> and well you're certainly good at talking so i'm sure it's not well this is what they tell me um <laughs> and it's called by by a section by by kenton hall uh, so that's that's the thing that's the important stuff isn't it absolutely. so people can look it up absolutely and and the film can tell us what what the film was and uh so people is that can people find yeah, that anywhere if, if you go on amazon and old points north you can find a dozen summers which was in, in some ways the flip side of this book in that it was talking about uh, what it was like for my girls growing up um, being 12. We shot it when they were about 11 or 12 and they actually starred in it. It was based on sort of my observations of them and their social group. But again, told in a very sort of magic realist way is that they picture all the things in their life through the prism of the film and TV that they've seen. So there's a lot of cutaways. It was made for about £4.50 and some buttons. Um, Colin Baker, who was Doctor in Doctor Who, was the, our narrator. He was my doctor when I was growing up, so that was my little treat to myself to get this actor that I loved in. Uh, Ewan McIntosh from The Office, Big Keith from The Office is in it. Um, and a lot of young and upcoming um, actors. And like I said, we shot it for next to no budget. Had a little run in the cinemas back in 2015. Now it's available on DVD and various digital platforms. So it's out there. I'm super proud of it. I can't watch it anymore because I just think need to fix that, need to fix that, need to fix that. That's why give it time, give it curse time. Of an artist, yeah. uh, that's why this so audiobook is dangerous because it has it doesn't actually go to print for a couple more days. So anything I notice between now and then, I'm gonna be onto the publisher going, Can I just just adjust one one little thing? And he'll go, No, no, you can't stop it. You've sent me 17 drafts since we set up the cover. So I have to be good and just let it be and leave the dance sequence for the next edition. Well, it's great. I mean, uh, this is a men's mental health podcast and you're a man. and, and, um, and By I've, all accounts. Yes, yeah. I, I, I can verify there is a beard. Verified. <laughs> yeah. But it means nothing. Although beards, yeah, yeah, that is true. No, that nothing. is true. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. label me. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Did you just assume his gender? <laughs> okay, we're straying into dangerous territory <laughs> yeah, okay, now. We're just okay. going to step back from that. <laughs> So Everyone is valid. So it's great. I mean, you've you've been able to talk so openly about your 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 past and your and your issues you've had, and I think that's going to help a lot of people. Is there um because we I always ask well we always ask people this any any advice you mm. would give to say there was a man who maybe thought he might be suffering from bipolar or something like that any any sort of top tip you would give or any advice. 
I, I absolutely think the first thing to do if you've got any suspicion is to just go and see somebody to get at least a diagnosis so you have a way of moving forward. I think the fear of going to see someone is usually that they will tell you you have. Um, but if you're feeling it, if you're feeling the pain and you're experiencing the symptoms, it is better to know and to have options than to just run yourself into a wall. Um, but also talk openly with the people around you. I think it's really important. Talking about men's mental health, one of the things that always strikes me is I don't consider myself a particularly butch example of the species. Um, you know, I like reading Oscar Wilde and making daisy chains. But I find myself pulling back to these ridiculous societal things like I got to take care of the family, got to put bread on the table. Despite the fact my entire life I've been with women who are strong, independent, intelligent people who can make more money than me by breathing in and out. And still, somehow, I've got that thing lodged in my head that I've, I've got to be a provider. Um, and obviously, mental health knocks a chunk off that ability sometimes because you're not as capable of going out there and hunting and gathering. And getting rid of that, it's a long, lifelong process. I still haven't. I find myself doing things that you would put in the traditionally male pot, like not listening to people. Um, <laughs> But I, then I go, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just crap at listening to people. <laughs> I'm away in my own head. But I think there is nothing that a man needs to be other than true to themselves. And it's easy to say and hard to pick away because even people who aren't, uh, don't identify as male put that pressure on people who do identify as male to be certain things. But I think when it comes down to it is you, you are no good to anyone else. If that's your driving force, being there for your partner or there for your children or there for your family. You are no good to them if you are not looking after yourself. So if, you're, if your drive is to provide for your family or it is to be emotionally there for your family, then look after yourself. Get the help that you need. And also, you have to talk about things. There is no strength in keeping your problems to yourself. That's, it's a weakness. It's a weakness that a lot of us have, most of us have, that we will just, we'll just drive it down, we'll put it in a box, and we'll put it at the bottom of the sea. And it will, it will always come back to bite you in the ass. Talking about things is the strongest thing you can possibly do. And I hate that to sound glib, but it really is. Um, and I'm big on talking, as you might have noticed. And even I sometimes find myself going, I'll just hold that one back. It's just this instinct we have that we don't want people to see us as weak or less. And people won't. Not if you're really willing to talk and really willing to listen. And it's a conversation rather than just an unburdening. You can actually talk about how you're feeling, what you need. Um, it builds closer relationships. I know by how many I've destroyed. Um, and that, that essentially is men just need to think about the fact that the strongest thing they can do is be true to themselves. And being true to yourself means actually examining yourself, looking after yourself and sharing yourself with other people. Because if people don't, if you're not known, you may as well not be. And that's kind of where we're at in because of the connections we make with other people are the thing that make our existence worthwhile. Wow. Here, here. That was, that wow. was fantastic. That was, um, that was a, an amazing, um, amazing podcast. I really enjoyed Probably that. One of the most insightful ones we've done in a while. That yeah. was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming. No, on. no, thank, thank you for you. having me. It's been a pleasure. And don't forget, everyone, to to. 
download or buy the book. Um, and uh, it, it's a it's a great read. Tommy's only read the first few pages. <laughs> oh, look. So, it's for the best. It goes downhill massively <laughs> after that. I'll tell you what, it's I just drawings, to. crayons. <laughs> There's not enough pictures in it, mate. <laughs> There's not enough pictures. Okay, that's been Man Up, everyone. We'll check you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.